Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Informatics Bites, the podcast where we talk with our members about innovation in pharmacy, hot topics in informatics and technology, brought to you by the ASHP section of Pharmacy, Informatics, and Technology. My name is Steve Lennon, and I'm a biomedical and health informatics pharmacist at the University of Florida Health Chance Hospital. And today we'll be chatting with Derek Rhodes, who is the manager of the pharmacy informatics and automation at Prisma Health. Kendall Gross, who leads the pharmacy informatics and automation teams at the University of California, San Francisco Health. And Elena Darby, who is a pharmacy informatics specialist at Cleveland Clinic about challenges with clinical decision support implementation. Throughout this podcast, we'll be discussing common problems and solutions to assure effective and timely implementation. Thank you for joining us today. Derek, could you please start us off with a brief overview of clinical decision support or CDS, and perhaps an example of a challenge with CDS implementation? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, so clinical decision support, from my perspective, is the use of technology to help clinicians make better, more informed decisions about patient care. Uh, in our world as pharmacists, this usually relates to the use of medications, but uh, it can certainly exist elsewhere uh, to help clinicians make better decisions for other aspects of patient care, too. Uh, within the world of medication use, we are usually dealing with uh, enormous amounts of drug information content. So if you think about the basic functionality that exists in most EHR alert, uh, EHRs uh, related to allergy alerts, duplicate therapy alerts, drug interaction alerts, organizations are usually relying on third-party vendor content somewhere in this process uh, to provide that information. And often your pharmacy team and even your clinicians may not agree with that content and informatics teams are often tapped to help refine it. Years ago, I worked for an organization that was switching from homegrown dosing content uh, to the use of third-party vendor content. And so that transition was uh, a move from um, maintaining a not small, but a manageable manageable amount of content uh, to having dose rules for virtually every medication we could order within our organization and overriding the existing content. Bringing in content like this for an EHR where medication records are already configured uh, for use requires a lot of analysis upfront um, because there's going to be incongruencies between how the medications are configured in, in your health system and how the content may be represented from the vendor. Um, examples of these incongruencies could be dosing units. Uh, so for some medications like electrolytes, whether you've elected to express those doses in milliequivalents or milligrams or millimoles, uh, other medications might uh, be expressed either as the elemental component or full, the full salt formulation combination medications and antibiotics are a good example where uh, you may express them as the total dose, or you may choose to express them as the, the one of the ingredient components in that uh, combination medication. OTC medications are another good example where uh, the doses and the labeling approved for you know, over-the-counter use may not be appropriate for use in an acute care environment. Um, and those are just the, the issues with dosing units. There can certainly be other issues that come up with this type of implementation as well. 
related to other components of ordering. So routes of administration, frequencies, uh, the list goes on and on. Derek, what strategies do you employ to optimize the use of third-party data to mitigate the challenges you just described? Yeah, so I, I hope this resonates with our audience, but uh, the 80-20 rule is certainly your friend. Uh, when dealing with any type of third-party data, having access to some good reports uh, that allow you to analyze how the content is performing in your environment is, is very helpful. Uh, in our example, we started with a report identifying the top medications ordered. Uh, and so we narrowed that down to about 125 medications that accounted for roughly 80% of all of our orders. Uh, we reviewed the content from the vendor prior to importing it and had a sort of action plan to do list of uh, initial tweaks that we needed to make uh, before turning it on. Um, and then when we did elect to turn it on, we uh, we chose to have the functionality alert initially just to our pharmacist to allow us to continue to identify and work through some opportunities before making it mainstream to all of our end users. Uh, some forms of decision support have that ability to turn it on, but not make it widely available to end users, uh, but write data behind the scenes to some tables that provide the opportunity to review for uh, additional optimization opportunities before making it mainstream. And that's certainly suggested uh, if you can leverage that, that would be a, a suggestion from us. Um, after our go live, uh, we continued to utilize reports and, to identify specific opportunities uh, to, to provide what was the biggest impact we could make to improve the usability for our end users. Um, the, the, the solutions that were identified often kind of fell into two buckets. Uh, and so it, it sort of is align your EHR to the content from the vendor or customize the content from the vendor to align to your EHR. The, the path that we chose in each example kind of depended on the work effort involved, but uh, when possible, it usually makes sense uh, from a future maintenance perspective to align to the vendor if possible. In working with vendor content for general medication use, like you described, allergies and drug interactions, have you identified any major pitfalls with the use of vendor content? Yeah, so, well, some clinicians will disagree with how a vendor classifies certain types of warnings. And so there's there's always opportunities to localize content to your specific health system and your providers and your needs. Uh, but if you were to ask some of these large vendors uh, who provide this content, uh, I think you'd find that a lot of them provide the content to a really wide customer base. And so applicability to an acute care setting uh, can sometimes be a little bit more nuanced and specific than they can provide out of the box. Uh, one opportunity specifically that's been noted over the years is mornings related to medication uh, medication use where, you know, from a kinetics perspective or a drug interaction perspective, uh, maybe there isn't anything seriously happening. Uh, but from a common sense standpoint and thinking about what we're trying to do for patient care, maybe doesn't make sense for us to support. Uh, a good example of this is the use of vasopressors uh, in a patient who maybe still has an antihypertensive on board. Uh, you know, a common scenario for that would maybe we continued some home meds and, and, and then an order set was started. And uh, these are sort of antagonizing mechanisms of action, but maybe don't exist as a true drug-drug interaction. Um, organizations sometimes choose to develop some homegrown processes to try to address these, but uh, as we've kind of discussed here, you, you have to be careful with custom content. Uh, 
because they only work as well as your organization is able to maintain the content. And, and maintenance can certainly be a, a huge challenge to stay on top of amongst all the other requests that informatics teams are challenged with. As you know, Steve, uh, when it comes to healthcare technology, it's essential to keep track of changes and updates in terms of the clinical information and, and, and system changes that we're making. So let, let's dive into how we can best track and maintain these changes in the future and communicate them to our end users. Certainly, we see clinical and system changes as being two distinct processes to consider, and both are equally important. As healthcare technology advances, so do the challenges of keeping up with clinical and system changes in clinical decision support. Let's take the COVID-19 pandemic, for example. We all know that new data, research, and guidance on the virus and its treatments were being published multiple times per day, making it crucial for healthcare providers to stay up to date. However, the speed at which medicine and pharmacy travel can often lag behind the routine data imports from third-party vendors that you discussed. So creating a time-consuming and complex challenge for us to face. Custom CDS records may need to be updated, new drugs and drug classes may need to be added to generic groups of medications, such as beta-lactam therapy, guideline changes for smart sets and other order sets, and even rule changes. Keeping track of these changes can be time-consuming and complex, but ensuring that pharmacotherapy is accurate and up-to-date is crucial. Another challenge in healthcare technology is keeping up with system changes. We know that mergers and acquisitions can lead to less ability to customize systems. So it's important to consider scalability and general content from the outset. As your organization grows, it may be much easier to manage if the technology is not heavily customized. We have found that you, uh, for, you pay for heavily customized systems twice once when building, and then once again when converting to a third-party vendor. The cost of switching systems, both monetary and time, must be considered. A tip for organizations is to limit the required maintenance during the scoping process and to document the process so that it's easier to keep track of changes in the future. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, what are some other strategies organizations can use to limit EHR maintenance requirements? Well, one way to minimize the maintenance requirements is to consider repurposing content. For example, antimicrobial related order sets can be used again in the future, and end users can customize generic templated order tools to meet specific patient needs. Additionally, creating checklists for new service lines or units can help limit the need for memory-based tools, which can be challenging to maintain. Kendall, one thing that we are seeing as people grow increasingly familiar with the potential of decision support is that there's vastly more ideas than resources to build and even implement them. How do you ensure you're working on the right things in the right time? Thanks, Steve. Uh, that's definitely been the case for us too. Uh, and we've found that having a strong intake and prioritization process has been really critical to making this work. For us, this uses a combination of a structured intake form, an objective scoring process, and clear communication. The first step in the intake process is to make sure that we're optimizing the decision support content itself. And really, first and foremost, it's important to ensure that the problem itself is amenable to a technology-based solution. By asking requesters to articulate the problem and discussing it during the intake process, 
We might identify that a workflow-based intervention paired with a simpler technology solution could achieve the same ends. Some other common decision support request pitfalls identified on intake are things like overly complex solutions with really high maintenance requirements uh, that either don't scale between uses of a given drug or between organizations in a system, like Steve mentioned before. Uh, others may include things like customized solutions to solve a very niche problem that doesn't happen often, or solving a problem for one group only to create a problem for another. Examples of the latter can include things like fixing an adult issue, but then causing one for pediatrics uh, when that solution is applied. Solutions that we've seen to help us work on the right problems focus on being as data-driven as possible and aiming to solve problems with the greatest impact to end users. Uh, simple tools such as two-by-two -two matrices comparing effort and impact in order to prioritize solutions and the 80-20 principle that Derek mentioned above have been some of our most effective tools. Uh, when intaking a request, we also try to identify how many patients and end users a given problem is affecting and aim to identify and solve underlying trends rather than just one-off issues. Pindle, it sounds like a strong governance process is the key to getting the right products done. What are some challenges and strategies you employ to mitigate them? I agree, Steve. Uh, the keys here really have been for us to create something that's objective, and transparent that's also easy to execute. Uh, for our process, it was really important to just start somewhere, uh, then iterate through it until we found the right process, and as much as anything, uh, apply it equally across all requesters. Now, your process also has to be nimble as situations change. Uh, for example, as our health system has grown, uh, we've had to revise our governance structures to include and coordinate approvals across a growing pool of decision makers. Another important point to acknowledge is that no matter how robust your system is, you can't engineer out every possible issue. Uh, for a given request, taking the time up front to define success criteria, acceptable failure rates, and measurement strategies will help ensure that the solution meets your intended goal and help you quickly identify and mitigate the inevitable challenges. I've also seen processes fail uh, because they were either too complex or too difficult to navigate. So definitely a word of caution here, uh, a process that's too onerous can take more time to assess and prioritize than the build itself. So simplicity is also critical here. With a system that isn't transparent or easy to follow, you may risk people either not using it uh, or only solving the problems of those who are good at navigating the complex system. To that end, it's also really important to embrace shared governance as a value for your department and to be clear about the process and how requests are prioritized. Elena, now that we've discussed prioritizing projects, uh, let's also talk about the communication aspect and how you handle that. Let's start with communication during the project. When a request or issue comes in, how do you communicate it with your users, especially when it's potentially something that won't necessarily be pursued? Of course. We all know that it can be difficult to tell requesters no, but I find that it's a very important skill in my job. Obviously, we don't want to say no to everything, but not all projects or requests can be completed due to a variety of reasons, and it's vital that we are able to communicate that appropriately. We often have to balance user expectations of what is reasonable. We all know that alert fatigue happens, but we still get plenty of requests wanting more alerts to prevent certain issues. We realize that each individual alert may be important, but we have to step back 
and have a process for ensuring that we are doing the right things from all respects. That may involve coming up with another way to notify the user of the issue. So the communication here may be offering an alternative solution. With that in mind, we also get some pretty big ideas from our end users that aren't always technically feasible or feasible within our resources. We have to reduce it down to a more manageable scale and offer somewhat of a compromise that may not be exactly what was requested, but is what we are able to provide. We still have to do this strategically, though, and alert the requester to why we had to do things a certain way because we still need their buy-in. Buy-in is so important when we get finally to the implementation aspect of projects. It's If there's no buy-in, functionality often doesn't get used. That's actually a perfect lead-in to my next question. Uh, when you're getting ready for a project to go live, how do you communicate with the users and how do you get feedback from them about how it's going? Oh, that's definitely one of the most important aspects of any project. Communication is very dependent on the size of the project and if it's an enhancement versus a break fix. However, we try to communicate in standardized ways, but this can include enterprise postings, workflow training sessions, identifying super users, and hosting demos if it's something larger. Often, smaller things can be communicated more directly with managers or the requester or even going to demo that for a smaller group. We also rely on managers and other representatives who may know the target audience better to help with disseminating information. Once a project is live, we also rely on end users to report issues. This is actually true of both old and new system build. We have to know that something isn't right or is broken before we're able to fix it. On that note, it's also important that requesters know how to submit a request. I've even seen quite a few people insert that link in their signature line on their email. Thank you, Elena, and thank you to all of our speakers. To summarize, what should we take away from this discussion? Yeah, Steve, we, we covered a couple of things here today, and uh, certainly um, uh, the common pitfalls incur, incur, uh, encountered in implementing CDS. Uh, and those examples would be the maintenance of the drug content uh, and third-party data that are utilized, uh, the prioritization and the communication. And I hope our listeners have a better appreciation for just how critical it is uh, to maintain healthcare technology uh, for providing high-quality patient care. I would add that keeping track of clinical systems is essential to ensuring that pharmacotherapy is accurate and up-to-date by considering scalability, repurposing content, organizations can limit required maintenance and make it easier to keep track of changes in the future. Additionally, as our health systems technology footprints continue to grow, uh, we also covered how robust, transparent, and nimble prioritization and governance processes are critical to ensure you're working on the right thing at the right time. And finally, how communication plays a key role in various aspects of the implementation of CDS. From the beginning, it's important in triaging requests. Throughout, it's necessary for understanding and buy-in. And at the end, it promotes satisfaction and use of the build. Without proper communication, CDS changes rarely work out the way that we hope. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Derek 
Kendall, and Elena for joining us today to discuss clinical decision support. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Informatics Bytes. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's Informatics Resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings in the Informatics Resource Center, including articles, standards and guidelines, as well as practice tools for pharmacy informatics and healthcare technology-related topics. Be sure to follow at ASHP Official Podcast for more episodes from the section of Pharmacy Informatics and Technology. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time.